Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Very glad you're with us for the Friday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis, but as you may have guessed, if you've paid any attention to the news today, they are all related to one thing, and that is the Supreme Court's ruling not only on the Dobbs case out of Mississippi, but on the larger question of the constitutionality of abortion. Jim, we were just saying before we got uh, going here, I was supposed to be on vacation today, but due to a COVID case in my family, we're not going on vacation this week. And while I am very disappointed on that, uh, it's hard to imagine not being with you and discussing this news on the day it actually happened. So, um, I mean, you and I were both born not that long after Roe v. Wade was decided. So we've lived with this debate our entire lives. Uh, the Supreme Court, especially post-Bork, I would say, uh, has really been, at least all the political fights about confirmations and so forth, has been centered on this issue. We were certainly old enough to remember Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And I think it's safe to say that you and I, deep in our heart of hearts, never actually thought this day would come or would be very, very unlikely. Um, but it did. And very simply, because we've all seen the opinion, it's been out there for weeks now. Uh, this is the holding of the Supreme Court today. The Constitution does not confer a right to abortion. Roe and Casey are overruled, and the authority to regulate abortion is returned to the people and their elected representatives. Basically saying the Constitution does not uh, hold the right to abortion. This is a state issue. Jim, so that's the best news of all. Uh, There's a big fight that uh, the pro-life community has been involved with for decades, nearly half a century. Uh, and on top of that, whoever leaked this and all the people that tried to you know, intimidate the justices at their houses, none of that worked. All of that's great news. It's hard to imagine too many better days coming out of the Supreme Court. Now, if you are a pro-lifer today, June 24th, 2022 is about as good as it gets. Um, and I, I'm glad you kind of walked through history there, Greg, because I think Casey was a real uh, metaphorical blow to pro-lifers. The idea that, okay, well, in 1973, the country didn't really know what abortion was going to be like. Now we've seen the consequences. We've seen that is that that point was effectively legal uh, up until the point of birth, and in some cases, partial birth, you know, in just about every state in the country. Um, now that Americans know what it really is, maybe they'll, you know, reconsider. And the Supreme Court did not do that. In fact, you know, Casey really was a uh, metaphorical kick in the crotch. And if you're a pro-lifers, you probably thought, well, it's going to be a generational fight. And it did turn out to be a generational fight. It's going to be a really long time. But you know what? The abolitionists knew it was going to be a long, hard fight, too. Uh, we believe this is literally a matter of life and death. This is literally a form of murder that the state condones and allows to occur. We have to keep fighting against this. And maybe we'll eliminate uh, partial birth abortion. Maybe we'll have parental consent laws for those under 18. Um, maybe we'll get really harsh penalties for those who take a minor across state lines to get a abortion and things like that. We're going to have to do this piecemeal, small bit by bit uh, changing of both the culture and the laws. And oh, by the way, I think all of that is still very accurate. However, I think what's what's just really mind-boggling about this, and we'll talk a little bit more about this in our third martini. If you th if this seemed almost unthinkable or a long shot, think about how most pro-lifers felt back in 2016 when they learned that Justice Antonin Scalia had passed away, and that sense that everything had. Uh, you know, that, that basically it was further away than ever. There was probably going to be a six to three or a 
five to four, that the, the center of gravity on the court was going to shift left and overturning Roe v. Wade and was was, uh, was never going to happen. Pro-lifers, you have earned the, this enjoyment. You have earned this joy. You have earned this exceptionally hard-fought victory. I'm going to add a couple of dark linings to a silver cloud. This is overwhelmingly good news, but I just want to keep pro-lifers to have keep in mind. If you read my colleague Alexander DeSantis or Catherine Lopez or any of my other uh, Ramesh, anybody else who's extremely distinguished and, and thought long and hard about the issue of abortion, they recognize the fight for pro-lifers is not over. It has changed from the you know the battlefield or the uh, content, field of contention of the Supreme Court now to 50 state legislatures. Um, the, you know, the work is not done. Uh, and I, the other intriguing thing is I think six months from now or so, the irony is things may not feel that different. In other words, there are a whole bunch of red states in which abortion is either if not effectively banned, highly restricted and uh, less and less available. And also there are a whole bunch of states where you basically only have uh, very few remaining uh, uh, institutions that will perform either abortions in general or partial birth and abortions. So, you know, and we know that states like California and New York are probably never are never going to ban abortion. Uh, they're already saying that they're going to pay for the expenses of people in other states who want to come to their states for abortion. Um, you know, chances are the blue states are going to remain, you know, largely pro-choice in their laws. Red states are going to be pro-life in their laws. And the ones that are in the middle, we're going to have some contentions, but I don't think you'll see sweeping changes one way or the other. I could be wrong, but I just think it's possible uh, that you will see much less of an immediate change on the ground, so to speak, than a lot of people are reacting today. The other thing that I kind of, you know, I think we in the pro-life community probably ought to keep an eye on. It is possible that states that enact sweeping restrictions on abortion will then see the consequences of that and decide to undo them. I'm not saying it's definitely going to happen. I'm just saying that these law laws are not static. Laws do not necessarily always stay in place. It is possible that some people who have always thought of themselves as being pro-life will experience living under you know, a regime or a set of laws in which abortion is effectively banned and decide, oh, wait, I don't like that. Um, I am not... Uh, I, I don't, not saying that's going to happen. I just think it's a possibility. And I think that abortion politics are a little bit messier than a lot of activists on both sides say. So, uh, but nonetheless, you add all of this up, it is still a momentous day for a pro-life movement, a momentous day for uh, pro-lifers, you know, going back well, you know, to Reagan and, and you know, uh, credit, my colleague Dan McLaughlin has this excellent point where he says, hey, all you Republicans who can't stand Donald Trump, Donald Trump played a very big role in this decision coming down the way it did today. Hey, all you Republicans who can't stand Mitch McConnell on the other side, Mitch McConnell played a very big role in this decision coming down the way it did. B ironically, both branches of the Republican Party have this shared belief, and both of them played a very important role in things shaking out the way they did. Now, it's a very good point, particularly about Trump. I mean, of all the Republican presidents we've had, when you think about their personal commitment to the pro-life cause, I mean, when he was flirting with the presidency back in 2000, he called himself very pro-choice, even supporting partial birth abortions, obviously pro-life on the campaign trail and in his judicial appointments. All three of his justices were in on this. You go back to the original Roe decision. Uh, it was a seven to two decision. And five of the justices came from Republican presidents, two from Eisenhower and three from uh, Nixon. The two opposed were Rehnquist, who was also Nixon appointee, and uh, Wizard White, who was a Kennedy appointee. And then you go through the Republican presidents uh, since then. Ford appointed Stevens, obviously a bad decision on a number of fronts, I would say. Reagan, as much as we love him, got Rehnquist right for chief justice, got Scalia right 
O'Connor and Kennedy were on the wrong side of this issue. You might like them on some other decisions. Bush 41, obviously split. Souter uh, went the other way. Thomas was and still is on the pro-life side of this. Uh, Bush 43 split on this because while Roberts uh, did uh, support the Dobbs position of uh, 15-week ban, he did not go with the majority on uh, totally overturning uh, Roe and Casey. And so uh, of all the presidents on the Republican side over the last 60, 70 years, if you go back to Eisenhower, who would have a perfect rate on pro-life justices, I don't know if you would have bet on Donald Trump, but that's exactly what he did. Then also, just you know, a hat tip over the past 50 years, I think, Jim, is in order to the groups that never gave up the cause, even when it looked hopeless. You think of Nellie Gray, who started the March for Life and got hundreds of thousands of people ultimately to march in the middle of January, because that's when the Roe decision came down, when it's often brutally cold year after year. Uh, you think of Phyllis Schlafly and uh, her stopping the Equal Rights Amendment, which a lot of people think would have codified abortion into the Constitution, and it seemed to be cruising uh, towards uh, ratification. And then just your groups that are in the trenches every day, National Right to Life, Susan B. Anthony, Americans United for Life, Family Research Council, Live Action, and I'm sure I'm missing several in that in that cause, but uh, every day rolled up their sleeves and fought. And as you said, they're going to be fighting now on a state by state level uh, because this is where the fight will now happen. The fight is not over. Uh, the fight is just going to happen on the state level where I think the Constitution uh, through the 10th Amendment would have argued. And I'm going to uh, shout out one more activist here, and that's my mother. Uh, my entire life, first of all, thank you, since I was born after Roe, for having me. Not that that was ever a dilemma for her. She was always going to. But uh, from my youngest days, uh, she marched on January 22nd in northern Michigan, Jim. And there's no one I know that hates cold more than my mother. Uh, so she was very much uh, committed to the cause. And it's not just one day a year. Uh, she is uh, quite the petition circulator for uh, state ballot initiatives and so forth, often on the pro-life issue. And so uh, her dedication and so many more like her uh, over the last 50 years deserves to be uh, highlighted and, and cheered today. All right, let's move on to our first uh, sponsor for the day, and that's the Presidential Election Project. Uh, guessing this is going to be brought up a few times in the campaign this year and and beyond. Uh, but the Three Martini Lunch is brought to you today by the Presidential Election Project. Imagine a scenario in 2024 that is similar to the controversies of 2020, with a lot of questions about irregularities in votes and even debates and recounts of votes in key states. Except this time, it's not Mike Pence, but Vice President Kamala Harris, who's being urged to interpret her role in the process as one where she has the right to determine which electoral votes count. And why? Because the Electoral Count Act isn't specific enough. The Presidential Election Project wants to see this changed. Go to presidentialelectionproject.com now. Sign up to get updates and learn more about this very important procedural ceremony and what steps Congress is taking to reform and clarify our electoral process. The project urges you to visit presidentialelectionproject.com and sign up to get updates so that by 2024, there's no question that Vice President Kamala Harris won't have the power to overturn those results. Again, presidentialelectionproject.com. All right, Jim, on to our bad martini now. And as you might have expected, uh, the left, in large part, not taking this well. Nancy Pelosi came out to her briefing today uh, and said, I would tell you it's good morning, but there's nothing good about this morning. And then she uh, slammed Republicans, Trump, McConnell, et al., and the court itself, of course, uh, for this decision. Here's what she said. Today, the Republican-controlled Supreme Court has achieved their dark, extreme goal of ripping away a woman's right to make 
their own reproductive health decisions. Because of Donald Trump, Mitch McConnell, and the Republican Party, their supermajority in the Supreme Court, American women today have less freedom than their mothers. With Roe and their attempt to destroy it, radical Republicans are charging ahead with their crusade to criminalize health freedom. The protesters are already out as well. My personal favorite, Jim, uh, as reported by ABC7 in Washington, a protester is scaling the top of the Frederick Douglass Bridge in Washington, D.C. Friday morning. But this is the best sentence. Reports say the man is waving a flag that reads, don't tread on my uterus. That is a perfect snapshot, Jim, of 2022, where a man is telling someone not to tread on the uterus. But nonetheless, we are more concerned about what's being called the day of rage. That is uh, something that this Jane's Revenge and uh, others have suggested might be coming in terms of violence towards uh, pro-life pregnancy centers, uh, perhaps uh, specific people who work there maybe. Uh, and now it's not just uh, something that's being talked about online and so forth. The Department of Homeland Security is actually issuing concerns about this. Uh, they issued a, a, a message that not only talked about their concern about violence related to the midterm elections, they're worried that, quote, given a high profile U.S. Supreme Court case about abortion rights, Individuals who advocate both for and against abortion have on public forums encouraged violence, including against government, religious, and reproductive health care personnel and facilities, as well as those with opposing ideologies. And Jim, they don't say it, but I'm pretty sure which side they're more concerned about. But, uh, you know, we saw the intimidation, or at least the attempted intimidation of the justices. Uh, what do you make of the fact that this has risen to the point where the DHS is actually issuing alerts on this? Well, before I dive into this, uh, Greg, for that grown man telling me not to tread on his uterus. Okay. <laughs> you want it? You got it. That's that's a request. I think I can I, I can honor that. Look, I, we are taping this around midday. Uh, these posters and these things calling for a night of rage and you know calling for uh, we're pretty, pretty explicitly calling for violence in the aftermath of a decision that overturns Roe versus Wade. They've been around for a couple of days now, uh, maybe a couple of weeks, and it's possible that nothing happens out of this. Um, there's no guarantee. Because somebody putting up posters and saying, no, nah, we're going to riot does not necessarily mean people are actually going to riot. I do, uh, you know, as I, I've mentioned on, on the National Review Slack and various other email lists that I'm on, every, you know, pretty much every morning for the past two weeks has been like, is today wrote, is, is today the Dobbs decision? Is today the Dobbs decision? You know. And as uh, I think it was Carol Markowitz who said, I have been reliably informed the decision's coming today. Apparently, the security around the uh, Supreme Court building was much more intense today. Uh, which I think a lot of people indicated there was some sense that this was this was the day the decision was going to come out. Um, you know, there's an interesting question of you, we know there's going to be an angry response to this decision from pro-choicers. That's that's you know, and that's protected by the First Amendment. You're allowed to be angry about it. You're allowed to protest. The question is, you're not allowed to commit violence over it. You're not allowed to you know commit uh, uh, you know vandalism, assault people, start fires, anything like that. And the question I kind of wondered is, will you get more of this on? A Friday evening than you would have gotten had they waited another couple of days and gone to uh, wait until Monday. Now, on the other hand, a lot of us have said, particularly after the threat on Justice Kavanaugh's life, get the decision out as quickly as possible. So I, I can't begrudge them for coming out with this, but I do wonder what's going to happen tonight. I do think if it does happen, it will be a tragedy. It will be an outrage and everybody who commits a crime should be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. I also think, by the way, this will not help the Democrats that these angry pro-choicers want to help 
because I think, God forbid, a night of violent rioting that is akin to the riots we saw in the middle of 2020 because of the police killing of George Floyd, uh, I think that kind of adds to this perception that Democrats are the party of chaos. The Democrats are the party that believes in rioting when it doesn't get its way or when it feels angry enough. And that in the end, not only are they, you know, abolish the police or anti-police, they are a force of anarchy. They are a force of chaos that Antifa is not as distant from the average uh, Democratic activist as, as they'd like to pretend. I don't know how things are going to shake out. Hopefully nothing happens tonight. Hopefully, you know, people who are upset uh, drown their sorrows at the nearest bar and everything turns out fine. And everybody kind of, and they decide, okay, well, I'm going to make sure the laws of my state legislature reflect the way I want to, as that's, you know, that's your, that's your right as an American. Um, but I do think there's a chance things get bad tonight, and I don't think that will play very well for Democrats, but I think you know, it's a terrible cost for that. And I do think it is normalizing this attitude of, well, when an institution of government does something you're sufficiently mad about, it is okay to use violence. Um, this uh, attitude on the left that words are violence, except for our violence, which is words. Um, that is that is kind of their mentality here. Hope it doesn't shake out this way, but uh, if you happen to be, you know, you know, that's, they used to say at the end of at the beginning of every episode of Hill Street Blues, let's be careful out there tonight. I, I don't know what uh, don't know what's going to happen, but it could uh, it could get ugly. No, you're absolutely right about that. And based on what we saw two years ago, I think there's heightened uh, concern that that's going to be exactly what happens. I don't know how widespread it'll be. Uh, but as we've said a number of times in a lot of states at least initially, it's not going to look very different. I mean, you've had these deep blue states. Remember Cuomo and the gang lighting up the Empire State Building in pink when they allowed abortion for any reason up to up to the moment of birth. And we've talked earlier about California. And I think some Maryland Democrats are talking about, you know, whether to uh, make sure nobody gets criminally charged if uh, babies are born after an attempted abortion and then they're neglected till they die, there's going to be no consequences for that. So to say that some of these deep blue states are going to be uh, still very, very far in the other direction uh, is something I think people are, are, are missing here. I'd like to see it changed, but uh, I, I think that the people who are about to lose their minds or maybe already have with these protests today uh, are missing that, uh, that, that key point. Uh, it's not like it's going away entirely for the whole country. Oh, Greg, just two two more thoughts. One, a night of really terrible violence driven by rage over a Supreme Court decision will not help the messaging Democrats want to do over January 6th. This idea that the MAGA crowd and Donald Trump voters are a unique threat to American democracy. And the second thing is I kind of, you know, actually, when you, when you look at, you know, the violence of January 6th, then you look at the violence already targeting uh, crisis pregnancy centers and, and pro-life groups and churches across the country. Um, I, I kind of wonder if some people develop an interest in politics because they want enemies that it is socially acceptable to hate. That in the end, the anger and the rage and the desire to destroy things, that's, that's kind of what drives them. That's what it's really all about. And they're just looking for an excuse. They're, they're just looking for somebody to say, yeah, that guy's the villain. That crisis pregnancy center, that church, they're the villain. Lash out at them. And then really, these people just have a great deal of anger and rage about the state of their lives in general. And that, that politics gives them a convenient way to lash out through that way. I hope that's not the case, but I increasingly feel that way. But uh, I, guess we'll, I guess we will see more tonight. Yeah. What was it that Michael Caine said in uh, 
the Nolan Batman series. Some people just want to watch the world burn. Hmm. And that's uh, what we might be seeing with some of these uh, cases here. And ultimately, we'll see what happens with the election. Some people are worried now that suburban women are going to go hardcore for the Dems when they might have been tempted to uh, give the Republicans a, a chance again after uh, everything Biden has messed up. But as you have described many different times here, this issue generally is baked into the cake. Now that the official ruling is here, I don't know if that'll change. Maybe on the margins in a couple of swing states, I don't know. But I don't think it's going to be uh, the massive issue that Democrats think, predominantly because uh, in most states, uh, it's going to take actions of the legislature uh, to change everything. So um, we'll see. But it, it, they'll talk about it a lot. That and guns, they'll talk about it a lot. All right. On to our next uh, sponsor, first of all, before we get to our crazy martini now, and that is NetChoice. As Americans, innovation has always been what makes us different. America's tech industry outpaces the world. We have the most innovative companies that power our economy and life. And why? Free market innovation. That's what makes us number one. But some in Washington want to put big government in charge of America's top innovators, attacking our own in the name of competition, while our true competitors like Europe and China close the gap. NetChoice believes congressional conservatives must stand for American innovation, not big government, by rejecting progressive antitrust proposals. They encourage you to tell your senator to oppose Senator Amy Klobuchar's Senate Resolution 2992. Learn more about this fight and send a letter to your representatives at netchoice.org 2992. This message was brought to you by NetChoice. All right, on to our crazy martini here, uh, Jim. And, uh, you know, we talked about how Donald Trump, perhaps, uh, given his previous positions on abortion, was an unlikely figure to nominate uh, three of the five justices to uh, overturn Roe v. Wade. Uh, but you have pointed out uh, another thing uh, today, and that is just when these vacancies occurred. We talked a little bit about uh, Scalia passing away and how the Republicans uh, would not allow a vote on Merrick Garland. Praise the Lord for that when you see what he's doing as uh, attorney general. And so that uh, seat was held open. Trump won the election and we got Neil Gorsuch for that seat. But uh, Amy Coney Barrett was another one. Uh, and why was she able to be on the court for this decision? Well, it's because Ruth Bader Ginsburg wouldn't leave the court back during the Obama years. So, Jim, uh, oddly, ironically, the person perhaps most uh, insistent on defending Roe v. Wade actually paved the way unintentionally for it being overturned. Yeah, I wrote a corner post on this earlier today, and I think a lot of people are going to, you know, think of this as trolling or just trying to press on the exposed nerve of angry Democrats right now. But I really do think this is an illustration of how uh, seemingly small decisions can end up having enormous consequences and often the exact opposite of what that person intended. And oh, by the way, I think it also illustrates a good portion of how we see and how we perceive the justices. Um, you know, obviously justices want to be, generally they like being on the court, they enjoy it, they recognize this is an exceptionally important role in our government. And, you know, even if you don't, if you feel like the, the judges, uh, justices have overstepped their bounds, um, you know, once you've been doing this for a while, you probably are not eager to go into retirement and play shuffleboard or, you know, go teach at a law school or something like that. You generally like that central role. Well, sometime in, I guess it was, you know, mid-2013, President Obama had lunch with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And the not so subtle message was, look, I don't know if Democrats are going to control the Senate after the midterms. Oh, by the way, they did not. And thus, it'll be really tough to replace you or any other justice who retires with a like-minded justice if Republicans control the Senate. And that is you know, pretty much exactly how it shook out. Apparently, Patrick Leahy, the uh, 
senator from Vermont who was on the Judiciary Committee for a long time, also had a similar conversation with her. Now, I am sure because of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's status, stature and uh, you know this, how Democrats felt about her, they didn't want to be openly saying, you know, Ruth, you got to go. It's time for you to, to retire. Uh, we're going to lose our window of opportunity to replace you with a like-minded justice. Republicans take over. We're not going to be able to replace anybody, as we saw with Merrick Garland. And, you know, they, Obama and Leahy and other Democrats could kind of see the risks. Ruth Bader Ginsburg did not believe there was any risk because obviously there's a really good, you know, particularly I'm sure by the time uh, the 2016 presidential election was set, because let's face it, everybody knew Hillary Clinton was going to beat Donald Trump, except she didn't. And I, you, know, you look back at that and you're like, okay, so they had that window from 2013 to 2014. I looked it up. Democrats had 55, effectively 55 senators. And that's not even counting a, getting a Susan Collins or a Lisa Murkowski or something like that to vote for a alternate nominee. Had Ruth Bader Ginsburg retired at age 80, having survived cancer twice in 2013 or 2014, she would have, uh, you know, they're all extremely likely Democrats would have confirmed a like-minded younger justice who would have been able to serve and fill out, you know, a much longer term instead of having Ruth, Ruth Bader Ginsburg pass away in uh, late 2020. Now, one of the things that I think is just kind of striking about all this is you recognize Ruth Bader Ginsburg was not just another Supreme Court justice. So, you, know, you started seeing her doing appearances with Stephen Colbert. Uh, you probably saw all the paraphernalia, the bobblehead dolls, the, uh, the, the little punching Ruth, you know, all the, all the you know, paraphernalia, notorious. She really turned into this bizarre Supreme Court celebrity slash icon of the progressive left. And look, there are folks, folks on the right always like their justices, you know, folks on the left always like their justices. But I, I don't remember a lot of Thurgood Marshall uh, merchandising. Do you, Greg? No, I don't. I, you don't go to a store in Washington, D.C. or anywhere else and say, oh, I got to get my David Souter paraphernalia. You know, like, you just did something turned. And I can't help but get the feeling some of this, and I think you know, clearly Ruth Bader Ginsburg did not resist this, doing the Stephen Colbert appearances and talking about her workouts and all that kind of stuff. I think after Trump won the election, Ruth Bader Ginsburg realized she had made this terrible consequential decision. And oh, by the way, you know, throughout, you know, people would periodically say it's time for Ruth Bader Ginsburg to retire on the progressive side. And other progressives would say, no, how dare you? She's one of our greatest justices. She'll retire when she's good and ready, how, you know, et cetera. And I think that debate has now been resolved in favor of she should have retired, at least amongst progressive circles. There's a recognition that what she got out of it was another six or seven years on the court, but what she, you know, what she cost Democrats was their chance at having a lasting majority of like-minded justices, and that has enormous far-reaching consequences as we see today. So, in a very, if you're a pro-lifer and you're celebrating, you're feeling pretty good. You can, you know, you can thank Mitch McConnell for blocking Merrick Garland. You can thank Harry Reid for eliminating the filibuster on uh, lower court judicial nominees because that opened the door for Republicans to eliminate the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees which is how they ended up only needing 50 votes. You can thank the 11 Senate Democrats who voted for Clarence Thomas way back in 1991. Mm -hmm. I looked that up. That's kind of surprising in light of today. Yeah. Um, there are a whole bunch of consequences that led to things getting to this point. But one of the factors was Ruth Bader Ginsburg hearing this obvious hint that she should retire and rejecting it and choosing to stay on the court. So in a very strange way, thank you, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. It's my favorite Ruth Bader Ginsburg decision ever. <laughs> to tell you the truth. And arguably one of her most consequential. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. But 
Wow. What a way to end the week. Uh, like we said at the very outset, Jim, I, I'm not sure either one of us uh, thought we'd actually see this day, but um, we got here and it's a, a day uh, to celebrate, but the work continues. So uh, have a good weekend. Hopefully there's not a lot of violence and uh, hopefully we'll have more good things to talk about on Monday. Talk to you then. See you Monday, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Uh, do subscribe to the podcast if you don't already. Tell your friends about us as well. Uh, thank you very much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. Also, you can get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play 3 Martini Lunch Podcast. And follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great weekend. And please join us again on Monday for the next 3 Martini Lunch. This week on the Federalist Radio Hour. I think it's important to remember that such Stalinist show trials are partially about persecuting political opponents and putting them in prison, but they're also about covering up crimes or covering up real stories. And so I have found it really interesting how the committee is engaged in a cover-up of what happened in the in the 2020 election. I'm Emily Jashinsky of The Federalist. Subscribe to The Federalist on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.